0: Welcome back to the program. Last week during the Emmys, we heard a lot of talk about this being the golden age of television. Certainly with shows like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Wire, and Newsroom, who could argue? However, for children's television, the golden age may very well have been 25 years ago. Then Nickelodeon changed the landscape of kids' programming. From the adventures of Pete and Pete and Clarissa Explains It All to Ren and Stimpy, Nickelodeon became the go-to channel for kids from early morning to Nick at Night. Today we have a whole generation that grew up on that programming. We're going to talk about this remarkable period with my guest Matthew Clickstein. He's written for numerous online and print publications. He's the author of the screenplay for Against the Dark in National Lampoon's College Town USA. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new oral history of Nickelodeon's Golden Age entitled Slime. Matthew Clickstein, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it.
0: Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the origins of Nickelodeon and how this this particular channel came to be.
1: Uh, Nickelodeon's earliest days um, are actually extremely humble. They started off almost as a public broadcast type station uh, in Columbus, Ohio, back in the mid to late 70s, um, and then really launched in 1979, funnily enough, uh, on April 1st. And what it really was was a loss leader for the movie channel. Uh, There was a company called WASAC, Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company, and they would actually go around physically to different cable uh, operators around the country and the committees and communities there and would say, go with us instead of our competitors because we have this award-winning children's network called Nickelodeon uh, that you get when you also get movie channel. Uh, instead of you know HBO that has nudity on it and whatnot. So it was used as sort of a humanitarian uh, ruse in order to sell the movie channel. The problem was uh, that because that was the motivation of having and, and keeping Nickelodeon going, they weren't really minding the store when it came to quality of programming. Um, so you had a lot of shows on there that most people probably never heard of before, like Against the Odds and a show that Reggie Jackson did actually about sports. Uh, Leonard Nimoy had a behind-the-scenes film show on there. Um, you know, just these shows that have become completely ephemeral uh, because, frankly, they weren't that great, and kids didn't really watch them or like them, uh, but Nick, you know, Nickelodeon was there as this loss leader for Movie Channel. It wasn't until the mid-'80s that Jerry Laybourne and her crew uh, came in and uh, said, hey, you know what, let's take a chance and actually give kids what they want and try to do something with this network, and then we had the Golden Age happen.
0: Talk a little bit about who Geraldine Laybourne was, where she had come from, and really what her vision was when she arrived at Nickelodeon.
1: Uh, Jerry was brought in um, as a freelance producer originally. Uh, She actually worked on a couple of these shows that I talked about that have kind of uh, faded off into the the distance, so to speak. Uh, She did a show called uh, Video Comics uh, and a few other programs, although she did work with some interesting people uh, this isn't in the book and uh, I was invited to Jerry's apartment uh here in New York and we spoke a long time. Uh but she worked with folks like um uh uh I'm blanking right now on her name, uh but uh you know, the woman behind uh, the Lion King show and uh you know on Broadway. I'm oh. blanking on her name. Uh but uh you know some other pretty big names, but these shows weren't that great to start with. And, uh, you know, she eventually got involved as a a programming person at Nickelodeon and helping to decide what shows they would show. And she was really pushing to have everything produced in-house rather than licensing uh, these shows. Uh, And that was something that became a Nick Hallmark, where they're going to actually make their own programming, have their own brand behind it. And eventually, in 1983, she becomes president of Nickelodeon. And I think it's important to note that she really started off as a teacher And uh, what was going on is she had these two kids, uh, and uh, she wanted to make sure that they had something that they could watch, that they would enjoy. In fact, she told me a very funny story. I'll wrap it up here with uh, her son uh, comes home from a camp that he went to when he was five or six and was in tears and threw his hat, his Nickelodeon hat, into the closet uh, because a bunch of the kids at camp had made fun of him because Nickelodeon was the doo-doo channel, quote-unquote. It was the baby channel, and he hated that his mom worked at it. And so one of Jerry's reasons for trying to make Nickelodeon cool for kids was to make her own son say, I'm proud that my mom works for Nickelodeon.
0: How did she see Nickelodeon's role relative to PBS and some of the children's programming they were doing?
1: Um, Jerry and and then some of the folks she was working with, like Fred Seibert and Alan Goodman, uh, Scott Webb, and some of the others who were involved, uh, they decided to delineate Nickelodeon from the competition what would later be Disney Channel and what was going on at PBS and Sesame Street and whatnot, as let's make the network that can be a place where kids can get a break, kids can rest. We're not going to educate them. We're not necessarily going to be socially beneficent, um, at least not in a way that is more direct the way that some of these PBS shows do. We're just going to be plain fun. We are going to be the clubhouse after school that kids can go to and kind of be by themselves, be alone, do their own thing, and enjoy themselves. And, of course, you know, the irony there is uh, they weren't alone. Mom and Dad were watching, too. The brothers and sisters who were a little older were watching, too. And uh, everyone else started kind of peeking over their shoulders saying, hey, wh- what is this? This isn't Sesame Street. This isn't, you know, uh, Saturday morning cartoons like He-Man. There, you, there's something going on here. And I think that was one of the really great successes there was that Jerry, Fred, Alan, Scott, and some of the others running the network, Mike Klingoffer and whatnot, they really wanted to make something different. They really wanted to just give kids what they want. And in fact, that was one of the big mottos or part of something called the Five Promises um, of Nickelodeon, where we, we give you what you want. Nick is kids.
0: And what it also managed to do, and certainly this is something we've seen that came later with some animated movies and some of the stuff that Pixar picked up on later, is create this crossover programming where the kids watched it, but it was also okay for older kids to watch it and even for the parents to watch it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that transgenerational aspect was a very important part of Nickelodeon. This was something where kids could enjoy it, but their parents were able to watch it as well. Um, And, you know, they weren't speaking down to kids. Uh, Mark Summers, who wrote the foreword for my book, and of course was the host of Double Dare and kind of the face of Nickelodeon during this time, um, you know, he was able to sort of poke fun at the kids and talk to them as though they were the adults. He made no differentiation between the way that he dealt with the adults, the parents, or the way that he dealt with the kids. And we, the kids watching, were able to see that. This was, again, a place for us, where, uh, you know, the kids were able to be in charge, or the kids were able to have just as much fun as the adults, and the adults were able to have just as much fun as the kids. I mean, when you watch a show like Salute Your Shorts, um, you know, you have the one, you know, responsible adult on the show, Ugg, uh, Camp Counselor. I mean, he's, he's the biggest kid of them all. I mean, he's almost uh, more immature than the than the kids on the show. And we were able to pick up on that. And meanwhile, the parents and some of the folks a little bit older are able to watch people like Kirk Bailey, who played Ugg, and say, hey, you know, there's a little bit of Three's Company in there. I, I'm sorry, a Three Stooges. And, you know, some Three's Company, too, I guess. It has the same kind of pratfalls. So everyone was able to enjoy uh, these shows uh, no matter their age. And I think that, that was really important, one of the reasons Nickelodeon was so successful at that time.
0: What do you think, looking back at it, the broader cultural influence that Nickelodeon had? I mean, we have a whole generation, as I mentioned in the introduction, a whole generation of kids that really grew up on this programming.
1: Absolutely. But, I mean, before we get to that, I think it's important to note that what Nickelodeon was doing was extremely revolutionary. No one thought to do what they were doing in the earliest days, which was something called narrowcasting. This is something different than broadcasting, narrowcasting being suddenly we have this idea of we're going to do an entire channel 24 hours a day, seven days a week of just children's programming. And, uh, you know, they were thought to be crazy at the time. No one thought that you could do something like that. Well, you know, it started working out, and then before we knew it, we had a sports channel, ESPN. We had a news channel, CNN, you know, and you know, on and on and on, a women's channel, a channel just for cartoons. But this all started with Nickelodeon, and I think that that's very important and kind of really helped to – Uh, create this aspect of our society today, even with the Internet and whatnot and, uh, you know, focus groups and, uh, you know, forums and and what have you of, you know, this is going to be just for kids or just for uh, sports. And uh, no one really thought to do that before. This is coming from people who are very involved in magazine culture and radio culture of, you know, this magazine is going to just be for this group or this radio show is going to just be for this kind of music. No one thought to bring that to television until Nickelodeon, the people who ran it. So that was very, very important, and we could definitely see how that's affected our culture today. Um, As far as the kids watching, um, and of course, you know, some of the adults and whatnot as well, um, I think we were imbued with this sense of irreverence, this sense of anti establishmentarianism that was very important, this sense of questioning authority and saying, hey, maybe you're wrong just because you're older, just because you say so, doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Um, You know, Nickelodeon wasn't totally a Cerebic, and it didn't have some kind of you know, darker uh, uh, motivation behind it. But the people making those shows did want kids to start thinking on their own and did want them to say, hey, you know what, maybe I should look into this a little bit more before I just give into it right away. Um, They even had, in the earlier days of Nickelodeon, uh, promos and PSAs saying, okay, guys, you've watched enough TV, go outside now, go play. I mean, they would tell kids to stop watching. And I think that that's something that was really important. They wanted kids to be a kid. And whether you're watching these shows and enjoying yourself and having fun with the slime and whatnot, or going outside and playing, that was Nickelodeon's main motivation in the beginning. It really was for a few years. This was not about marketing. This was something that these people really cared about. And a lot of it, again, came from Jerry and her mentality of making good quality programming that kids can enjoy that would be good for them. And also to say, hey, get off the couch and go outside and play for a while too, by the way.
0: Also the idea of incorporating kids' programming into prime time, things like Nick at Night, That was was revolutionary at its time.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I could say personally, for me, it had a great impact. Um, I learned a great respect uh, for early television, and that would burgeon into early film. Uh, I learned a lot about vaudeville. I mean, uh, these shows taught me quite a lot at five, six, seven years old. I mean, I was really into Nick at Night. I was so amazed and spellbound by the black and white uh, uh, image quality and the way that everyone talked, the way that they dressed. I mean, it really taught me a lot. About culture and um, you know even though a lot of these shows uh, weren't exactly totally realistic. You know, your Mister Eds and what have you. It did give me an interest in what was going on before me and what was going on before the TV that was on at that time. And uh, you know, I know I wasn't alone here. I started reading books at a very early age about everyone from George Burns to Phyllis Diller, and uh, you know, went back to Marx Brothers and Three Stooges and whatnot. All thanks to Nick at Night, I have to say, it gave me a reverence for the past, which is kind of ironic considering what I just said and it's true about Nickelodeon is it also gave us that sense of irreverence and saying, screw the past, make your own uh, future and have some fun with it. So I think Nickelodeon, again, was really good at bordering uh, and balancing that where, you know, watch some good quality TV, but go outside and play too. Have some reverence for some of the past that you wouldn't have normally thought about, but also be irreverent as well and, you know, do your own thing. So, you know, I think that's why Nickelodeon was so special is – Uh, It brought together so many different contradictory aspects of uh, the culture and then filtered it out and gave it to children, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's amazing. And we see it today in my generation, you know, the way that we're making films, the way that we're making music, uh, the way that we're seeing the world. I mean, this was definitely a big part of what Nickelodeon was all about. This was not just television. This was a whole way of seeing the world and of teaching us that had never been done before and unfortunately might never be done again.
0: Talk about the extent to which Layborn and her team were, were surprised by the success of what they were doing.
1: They were totally surprised. You know, what's funny about it is, and, and you know, I have to say, we, we have to kind of be, you know, we have to work with some of the semiotics here as far as what you mean by success. Um, certainly, they knew what they were doing was successful and that they were creating quality programming. Jerry uh, succeeded her son was able to be proud that, you know, his mom worked at Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon was this really cool underdog. You were kind of like a cool kid if you were into Nickelodeon. It was something for, you know, a different kind of a kid. So they were successful in that way uh, pretty early on with shows like Double Dare and You Can't Do That on Television. Now, money-wise, yeah, you know, they weren't going for the merchandising and, you know, it wasn't exploding, um, you know, the way that, uh, you know, Nickelodeon would years later when it went global and that kind of thing. Uh, but there was definitely a time where uh, you know, they were able to sort of say, okay, we're just going to do this kind of great quality programming, and that's all we care about. In fact, Jerry told me, and a few other people did as well, a story where Casio came to them very early on and said, we're going to give you a million dollars if you put our name under the clock at Double Dare. And they said no. And this was at a time when they needed that money. And we're talking the mid-80s when a million dollars was a lot more than it is today. <laughs> and they said no. So I think that they felt that they were successful in creating what they wanted. Uh, And they weren't as interested in, you know, the advertising dollars and the merchandising because, frankly, they weren't going for it. But, yes, when that did start to happen and start coming in in the early 90s, uh, I think it took everybody by storm. And uh, some folks were a little confused. Some folks were a little baffled. And, you know, suddenly, you know, this kind of fun, cool thing that they were able to do on their own was getting co-opted and, you know, there were a lot more interests involved and you know this is what happens with any kind of art movement or you know the same story as punk or grunge or saturday night live or mtv you know you started off as the andy hardy hey let's go to the cabin and make a show and then it becomes something that is actually working out and people are enjoying and then the big guys get involved and say hey you know here's a little bit of money for you so you keep doing it but we want you to do it this way now and before you know it you become something completely different than what you wanted and that is the narrative of Nickelodeon. They started off as, quite literally, they told me this, anti-Disney. They became Disney. And, you know, successful in a different way. They make a lot more money now than they did right. before. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not the same kind of programming.
0: Once the programming started to have success among kids watching it, there were lots of imitators that came along. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, there's something called mimetic isomorphism. And this is uh, a company, will see what another company is doing and sees that they are successful with it. Bill Gates refers to it as the positive spiral. It's the reason why we, have, we got into VHS as opposed to beta at that time in those early 80s as well, um, where you know just it, it, it spreads exponentially, and suddenly you say, well, they're doing it this way. They're getting some success. They must have the secret code. We're going to need to follow that, and that is indeed what started happening with a lot of the other shows on you know Saturday morning cartoons on ABC or certainly with the Disney Channel, um, they even started to kind of uh, cherry-pick some of the people. Jerry Laybourne would go on to work at Disney for a little bit uh, after she left Nickelodeon. A few people would go to Disney afterwards. They had a lot more money, and they were able to pull these people, as you would you know, a nice chef from a restaurant or something like that. You could pay them a little bit more after they've gotten all this training. Um, so they were definitely imitators. Um, and unfortunately, again, what's happened today is, for a while, people were following Nick. Now Nick, unfortunately, is starting to kind of follow... Uh, other people, and we've actually seen this. Uh, the ratings have dropped for the first time in almost 20 years uh, in the last year or two, uh, where they are no longer the number one uh, kids network anymore. It is it is Disney, uh, or it became Disney at least as of last year. And uh, I, you know, I think that that bespeaks a lot of what they're doing right now, where their philosophy has kind of become, all right, you know, let's bring on Power Rangers, let's bring on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, let's do a lot of what Disney was doing with these aspirational shows of you know, rather than kind of the fun stuff they were doing at Nick in the earlier days with Pete and Pete, where it was less about being a rock star or or a popular kid at school, and it was more about sitting outside and wondering, you know, what are you going to do that day with your friends, you know, or or who uh, checks your uh, label in your shorts, you know, so, you know, things like that.
0: One wonders if you looked at those programs today, if you looked at those programs that were the most successful for Nickelodeon during this period, Whether or not they would hold up, whether or not they would have the same kind of effect in the current cultural climate.
1: Um, you know, I think that the answer is, uh, you know, right there in the book and the fact that we were able to do it at all. I mean, and the fact that we're having all these reunions for these shows, the fact that Nickelodeon itself is starting to actually re-air these shows, uh, that you have fans clamoring for these shows to be put on DVD. Many of them are not, or not at least the entire series like Pete and Pete. I mean, that's such a, a, a cult classic now. I mean, we have these reunions and everyone's talking about it. You still can't get the third season, the last season on DVD. Um, you know, which is a little bit of political stuff, too, over there. But still, um, you know, we're seeing that resurgence happening. Um, and I think a lot of it is because my generation that grew up on these shows, we've become or are becoming the arbiters of what makes it through in the pop culture. We are editors of magazines now. We are running radio shows now. We are running TV shows now. Uh, we are able to do things like this book. Um, we were able to make movies and whatnot now. You know, we're starting to kind of run the scene, and just as previous generations did the same thing with Star Trek or Star Wars, or before that, you know, Woodstock and Jimi Hendrix, we're starting to do that with these shows that were that meant so much to us as younger people. Um, so I think that the relevance is definitely there because we're bringing it back and indeed you know it's funny I speak with a lot of people on the Facebook page for the book facebook.com forward slash Nick Oral History many of these kids are kids a lot of them are still in high school a lot of them are 20, 21 and they're not talking about iCarly and Dora the Explorer they're talking about Ren and Stimpy they're talking about Pete and Pete they're talking about you can't do that on television some of these quote unquote kids who are you know 15 20 years old you know they know more about these shows than I do and you know they weren't even born yet when these shows were first being aired. And I think that it has that connection the same way that those Nick at Night shows had with me, where they're saying, whoa, what is going on? What is this show, Pete and Pete? That's not what's on right now. That's not what they're showing us right now. Um, You know, when I was younger, I got so into the Twilight Zone. This was outside of Nick at Night. But, you know, there was just nothing like it on television at that time, Um, even though it was, you know, by that time, you know, 40, 50 years later, um, so, uh, you know, I think that we have a lot of these younger people that are getting these old Nickelodeon shows now for the same reason. So I think that the relevance is definitely there. Otherwise, this all wouldn't be happening.
0: What do you think represents the quintessential Nickelodeon show? If you looked at the whole list, the whole panoply of shows, what represents really the, the defining show for Nickelodeon?
1: Oh, gosh, that is probably the toughest question I've been asked yet. I I can't even imagine because every show was completely different, not only from what else was on television at that time or even now, but from each other, Um, you know. One of the difficulties that I have with television these days, one of the reasons why I don't really watch it anymore, is I feel that every show looks very much like every other show, at least of its same kind of genre. When I'm at the gym, which is really the only time I see television these days, everything's on mute. And I can't tell whether I'm watching How I Married My Mother or Big Bang Theory. Um, You know, All the cop shows in my mind kind of all look the same. Uh, They all seem the same. They're edited the same way. Um, and you know, with Nickelodeon back in these days, every show was completely different than the other. Um, so, you know, you had, you can't do that on television, which was quintessential in that it brought on the slime and it brought on that kid first, you know, screw you attitude. Double Dare was incredibly important uh, because it had Mark Summers, who was the face of Nickelodeon, and really brought on that energy and go-go attitude, uh, and again, kind of redeveloped the slime in a whole other way. Pete and Pete uh, had the, uh, the mentality of uh, kind of this uh, elegiac sobriety about it that was really important for some of the Nickelodeon shows, and brought on kind of a certain somber aspect that helped to bring in the way of uh, the early 90s with alternative music and that sort of thing, and also The music from that show, from Polaris and uh, Magnetic Fields and Yola Tango, which were really, uh, you know, emblematic of that time and what was going on in the early 90s. I mean, you could just listen to Pete and Pete today, and you would feel like you're brought right back to 1992 or 1994. Uh, And then, of course, you have Ren and Stimpy, which represented a whole other aspect of Nickelodeon, but was still just as quintessential and as important to the Nickelodeon brand, which was the scatological, the wild, uh, outrageous Um, just crazy antics, the anarchic uh, aspects that Nickelodeon also really uh, represented. So it's so hard to say exactly what show uh, was the Nickelodeon show. I mean, some people would even probably say Clarissa explains it all just because of Clarissa's attitude, the way she looked, the way she acted. She was very intentionally androgynous, the way that they dressed her. Her room was set up in a way where it's both for boys and girls, even down to the color scheme. Mm -hmm. They wanted to make sure that they didn't have any purple And a lot of that was so that they can split it right down the middle with the blues and the pinks. They didn't want to bring it together. They wanted there to really be this contrast of boy and girl so that you always had a sense of, you know, boys could watch it and girls could watch it. You know, she was this beautiful young blonde girl, but she also played video games. She also wore combat boots. She was also really into cars. Her best friend was a guy. So, you know, they were really able to play with that, with Clarice Explains it all. And so, too, you know, she was the Nick kid. So, you know, it's just really hard to answer which show is, uh, represents Nick the best.
0: What brought it end to the Geraldine Layborn period at Nickelodeon?
1: Um, you know, Cy Schneider, who was running the company uh, beforehand, uh, he left. He resigned. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he was seeing that there was a tide that was shifting and that there was a sea change happening. Uh, you have to remember, Cy really represented the old school. Uh, he was one of the people, if not the person, who developed the Barbie doll. I mean, he went over to, he was, he was doing advertising. He came from the advertising world. And, uh, he was doing some work for Mattel went over to Germany found this uh, you know this little toy that was actually at the time for men um, at cigar shops and whatnot it was, you know, it was a little it was a little woman that that you could buy along with your cigar and he brought it home to him uh, to, uh, back to America and said, "Hey, we can market these things and do it uh, for young kids, and they created the Barbie doll. So that's where this guy was coming from, and people described him as someone who was kind of an Ernest Hemingway type. He even kind of looked like that, where, you know, he would go on safari hunts, and he smoked cigars, and he was a real man's man, you know, and this was the guy who was running a, a children's network, uh, you know, this guy in his uh, 60s or 70s or whatever he was. And, you know, so this was at the time, again, where it was, uh, you know, it was a moneymaker for uh, Wasek and for um, – the movie channel, and you know, that's what he was there for. When Jerry first started getting involved, and uh, Fred and Alan and a few of these other people started getting involved, uh, just kind of on the periphery to start making Nickelodeon a little bit uh, you know, more for children, uh, Cy, uh, from what I understand, you know, said, All right, I guess my time is up. He resigned, and it came down to Jerry Laybourne and another gentleman named Jeff Weber. Uh, who I spoke to, but unfortunately I didn't have room for in the book, uh, as far as who was going to take over Nickelodeon. And uh, Jerry ended up winning. Jeff left, and uh, Jerry was able to sort of take it where she wanted it to go. And a lot of it was because, you know, there was no money. No one was watching, and it was like, all right, see you later, Jerry. Do whatever you want with it. We don't really care anymore. You know, it served its purpose. We've sold Movie Channel, and that was it. But Jerry kind of secretly... You know, she actually had a meeting at her house in Montauk with Fred Allen, Scott, and a few of these other people. They said, all right, what are we going to actually do with this? And there was a famous headline at the time uh, that read, from worst to first in six months. And that's exactly what they did. They suddenly brought it up and said, you know, we're going to actually make something that kids want to watch. And that's exactly what they did.
0: Matthew Clickstein, the book is *Slime: an oral history of Nickelodeon's golden age. Matthew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Appreciate it.